Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Katherine Garforth from the Right to Read Initiative. And today I have the pleasure of being joined by Janelle Keller again. And that today we're going to speak about her journey to the science of reading. Yesterday we spoke about what she sees in the high school classroom with that three queuing teaching strategy. Can, can we hold on a second? Somebody's at my door. Hold on. Yes. Hey. All right. Hold on. Oh, sorry. <laughs> the joy of live recording. We're just taking a minute. No, I don't, but I'm I'm in the middle of a webinar. They're recording me. So if you could, that'd be great. If we could do that later. I don't have a sync. Thank you. <laughs> All right. I I some, hear that again. I'm sorry. That's okay. Yeah. I saw somebody walking up. I was like, what are they doing? And then the key, and I was like, oh no. So sorry. Hello, everyone. My name, I'll start that again. Okay. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Katherine Garforth from Garforth Education, and this is the Right to Read Initiative, where we are talking about how we can help our students get access to the right to read. Today, I had the pleasure of having Janelle Keller, a teacher from California, join me. Yesterday, we spoke about what the three queuing system looks like in high school. And today, we're going to talk about her journey to the science of reading. Hello, Michelle. Welcome back. So why don't you start off by telling the listeners a little bit about who you are and where you're teaching today. Okay. Um, I started teaching in 1994. I was a community college instructor for history. That was my, I have a master's degree in history and that's where I started. And at that level, I noticed that I had students in my class that couldn't really read or write at the level that I had expected for you know, basically incoming freshmen in a community college. So that, that was a puzzlement to me. I was, you know, that was how I first started. And then eventually I moved into the K-12 arena and I taught in a junior high school. They recruited me to become a literacy coach because I had a background in, I had a master's degree and that that was like a, minimum qualification. And I didn't really know anything about being a reading instructor or teaching reading. I was really a very content focused uh, person. Mm -hmm. And I did get my multiple subjects credential uh, to become a teacher. And so then I, they kind of skirted me off to, and trained me. I was trained all over the state of California. Um, different, uh, just all kinds of literacy seminars and classes, coursework. And primarily we were, there was a woman named Carol Hanlon um, in Hanford where I'm at in California, that Central Valley area. And she was really um, significant in my coming to understand how important literacy was she did she did promote the balanced literacy um program she believed in it with her whole heart and she was just she was very smart very intelligent woman 
so I, that's, that's how I came into it. And through that balanced literacy model, we used predictable texts. Um, we used leveled texts. I even built, I was eventually placed in a junior high school because of my uh, background in history. And my job was to then help teachers in the seventh and eighth grade integrate literacy principles in their classroom. That was my job. And with English language arts and social studies. So I built an entire library that was just for them of with different kinds of leveled books and different grade level of books, you know, things that were a little bit lower so that other kids, you know, kids, regardless of their reading uh, level could have access to, you know, content and information. And that was fun. Um, and I really bought into that. I really, I trained in guided reading practices, transitional um, reading groups, small group instruction. And I got, I was very comfortable with that. And these were the practices and skills that I would, that I had and that I was using for many years. And those were the skills, that's the skill set that I had when I came to the high school where I'm at now. And I came here in 2006. And I wasn't immediately the reading teacher. I was in the social science department. So I was teaching history, world history primarily, and theater, which is another area that I studied. So that was, um, that's how I started here. And about 2010, I, I moved into the English department and started uh, training with teaching kids reading because I did have that background and we had a need for it. And that was after a lot of conversation among the staff, we'd have different staff meetings and you would hear the comments about how kids uh, didn't do their homework. They couldn't read their homework. Um, kids didn't seem to have a lot of background knowledge. So those things were conversational pieces that would go around staff developments and everybody course wanted to have an answer to that and the primary answer was you know hand them some kind of graphic organizer and I knew that that you know I, I knew that that wasn't going to work and I started at that point about 10 years ago realizing that it was um, a much wider problem than we really understood in the high school level and that just sort of started me digging I was employing at that time uh, the practices that I had been trained in. So uh, in a high school setting, it's not very common to work in small groups or in any kind of one-on-one -on -one fashion. The idea that you would have any sort of tiered levels inside of your class uh, really didn't happen. There was a big push for things like um, engagement strategies like Kagan, that one comes to mind. I can't really think of any right now, but that, that was a really big one. And our district is still pushing Kagan strategies for engagement, but that really isn't the problem. The lack of engagement from what I could, you know, from all of the years since 2010 till now, so we're about 12 years in and it, it, I have, I find it, it's, it's more at the root that kids don't have, they're not engaged because they're not engaged in high school because they haven't been engaged in content for years. 
and they haven't been engaged in the content because they stopped having access to the content from probably third grade on. And that sort of created the, the uphill climb that they had. And as we all know that reading, you know, there's that point really between third and fourth grade where the, the, the move, the, well, they're required to start learning information, right? And so if they can't access that information through the text, then the, the real struggle starts. And then they just start falling behind. And that little bit that they fall behind every year just sort of just snowballs. So by the time we see them in high school, not only are their reading skills really far below, um, hand in hand goes then with their writing skills. And then right behind that is their lack of content knowledge because they haven't really been able to interact and absorb the information. They haven't been held to a certain, uh, that just sounds bad. I don't think it's because teachers don't want them to. I don't think it's that, but that, you know, things just get modified to the point where it's not even, it's a lot of the meaning gets lost, you know, and that comes to, it follows them through high school and these gaps in knowledge, the gaps in reading and writing, all of those things I see are integrated. I don't know how to break those apart, but they're, they're all integrated and you see that as a detriment for the students in high school. So I have them as, I only teach freshmen because I'm one person. So I have all the incoming freshmen that can fit into my classes. And about 20, yeah, and so this has just been a conundrum for me. Like, why is this happening? What can I do about it? And I was getting frustrated because I was doing the things that I had been taught to do. And I, I wasn't seeing the level of success in large numbers based on the smaller classes that I have, because they, they give me 15 to 20, 20 is a max, um, but I'll have about 15 to 20 in every class. So it's a small number. Um, I only I have them that it's not a small number, especially <laughs> when you're at the high school letter level and you're having kids whose reading ability ranges from kindergarten to only a couple years behind where they should be. Right. So that's a huge challenge. Now yeah. let's take a moment and kind of go back to the beginning. So you started out, I mean, after high school, presumably you went to university and you have a master's in history. So I'm assuming a lot of your coursework was in history um, and maybe some English because you had that theater, but you know, this isn't meant to be an attack on you or anything, but did any of those courses look at the English language specifically looking at, you know, the, the linguistic side of things, understanding what words are made of? No, that I didn't, I didn't study any of that until I came to this school and I, because I had a multiple subjects, then I had to, um, I had to prove my single subject worthiness. Right. And so I didn't start taking, I didn't take linguistics until that time. So and that, that's, that's I guess only been, uh, 
I don't know. That's probably been about eight, eight years ago, maybe something like that. And the reason why I bring this up is because many teachers go into the profession with a background in history or English or theater or math or sciences. And and the point is that their education up to the point of the teacher education program did not include information about learning to read English and how the English language is put together it's phonology. So that's the, the sounds within the language Mm -hmm. and how we translate that into printing and the written language. Mm -hmm. English is a complex, deep orthography that is morphophonemic. So that means that our writing system is based on the morphology or those smallest units of meaning of words and the phonology. And that's about the phonemic awareness or the sounds in language. And if you are learning or wanting to teach students how to read, you need to have a a basic understanding of this. Now, if it's not something that you're getting before you enter your teaching degree or the professional learning that you do to become a teacher, where is it coming from? Because it, it's a large body of knowledge. And what, I, what we're seeing is that teachers are having to get this after the fact, after they are already classroom teachers And it's coming a little bit here, a little bit there. Oh, I saw this article that looks good. And this book looks good. I should buy that off of Amazon. And we need to get it so that it's not being left up to chance. Mm -hmm. I I didn't get any of this literacy specific training until I was selected to be a literacy coach. Mm -hmm. And so that that's when, I mean, I was, you know, I got, I was inundated with the Lucy Calkins Fontes and Pinnell, uh, reading, uh, various reading trainings. I had to take classes. So that was uh, a reading specialist certificate, uh, though, that kind of thing. But that was definitely after my teaching credential. I didn't have any of that as part of it. I, I think we had some sort of like a unit in the multiple subjects credential mm-hmm. part. It, at least that's what we have to do in California, but not anything it's, it's literally a specialized field. So it's really not included right in the, in the regular multiple subject and definitely not a single subject. So then as a literacy coach, when you you did that training, you know, did you look into some of the, the basics that are now considered like essentials for teaching reading? Did you look into the simple view of reading and Scarborough's reading book to really understand how we get into that reading comprehension thing were those in part of your training yeah i have i have a whole library in the corner i just like i keep collecting i keep collecting books and you know you read them and i think i have like doubles of some stuff it's kind of funny (laughs) but i i really you know when i what how i got to where i'm at now yeah outside of all of the reading was that i was trying to figure out what was going on in my kids' brains um, that may be preventing them from being as successful as they could be Mm -hmm. in reading. 
And I probably started researching that in 2016, 2017. I, I mean, the science of reading was out there at that time. I, I, I didn't see it. Um, it was the point that I'm trying to make. Oh, is that, that a lot of this learning is stuff that you've done on your own Yes, and, and not been that uh, initial literacy coach specialist. I mean, I haven't seen that as part of a Lucy Calkins program or a Fontes no. program. No. So, you know, that in is- that certification, was that information made available to you or is that stuff that you've discovered on your own? I, most of that has been on my own. And I was the district where I was trained as a literacy coach. Uh, after about four years of that, um, I was in my fifth year, 2006. So it might have been going into my sixth year is when I came. I moved to another school district and um, I came to the high school level. Mm-hmm. And so that was in 20, that was 2006. So, uh, and that's the high school I'm at now. And um, so I didn't really have, we've, I haven't really had any, we haven't been offered any training here. They had reading teachers, we called it reading improvement. And those, those classes were mostly, they were workbooks, you know, basically like here, learn how to annotate this text. So we, their folks those annotate text and use graphic organizers. That was the answer to the students who weren't reading at grade level. And I knew that that was junk. I knew, I knew it wasn't going to be helpful because of the background that I had in balanced literacy. And then, and so I, I knew that, but I, it took a couple years for me to be in district meetings and talking about things and questioning things um, before I was allowed to con- branch out on my own. And so I would, I started researching pretty hard by 2017 and presenting that research to my administration who has, uh, who now pretty much let me use the research. So wonderful. It's it's taken a minute. It took a minute and there's a lot of frustration in there. Uh, And primarily because I, I felt like if, if everything that I loved about teaching reading, if, if that information was correct, if it really was that useful, then I would see more of my students closing the gap than I saw because I knew what I was doing because I would hold myself accountable. I kept spreadsheets and I, I, you know, you know, the scores of the things that we had, I would use the globe fear on we did have to use the star for AR because that's all we had. I had to use things that the district would recognize. And even then it was, just, it was enough to where you could see there was a discrepancy between, you know, where they should be and where they actually were. Um, so I forget what I was saying. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. So when you started that journey on your own to expand your knowledge, where did that start? Like, how did that look like? Was it, it it looked, it looked like I was, I was researching the, the impact of poverty and trauma on the brain for learning. And I kind of was going there trying to see what, 
what information was there and how that might um, affect my the students I was working with, their ability to acquire language. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of, it kind of, t- and then I, and I got on this weird little, uh, I, I came across an article about the use of cursive and MRIs, and I can't remember who the study was, who did the study. I, I have it in a file somewhere, but it just kind of made me think about, gosh, you guys have really terrible penmanship. And oftentimes like they would write stuff down. Like, I can't read that. And I'm like, what, what is that? And they're like, I don't know. I'm like, so basically you wrote something on a page that you can't read and I can't read it either. <laughs> How is this helping you or me? It's not. Mm-hmm. And, and then I, I started I, about 2017, I started experimenting with teaching them cursive mm-hmm. and a lot of them I, I, and then I discovered, and so when you do things like that, because you want to see, well, I wonder if that has an impact. And I realized that there were a lot of my kids who didn't know how to hold a pencil correctly and they will hold it. Like I get this, I got that. I'm like, how, how, you know, and you're trying to teach me like hold, how to hold it, you know? And, and I was like, wow, how come nobody ever caught that because that's because like, my hand hurts I'm like I know because you're holding the pencil like this <laughs> so anyway just little things like that that I started to you know made me I don't know you would go down the rabbit hole and you would dig and I would find something else and give listeners a bit of context if correct me if I'm wrong but you're in a title one school where you have a hundred percent free lunch Most of your student body are Hispanic. So they are English language learners or English as an additional language. No, no, not actually you would, you would think that that would be it, but it isn't. So most of our students are English only. Oh, yeah. So that that's the other misconception that I have bumped into is there's a lot of assumptions about, oh, you must have a lot of migrant students, which we don't. You must have a lot of English learners, which we don't. A lot of them are English only. So a lot of the students I teach are uh, third, fourth generation. So, and there are, we do have English onlys, but they are not the large portion of the population that we teach. Okay. So, but their, but their deficits are still there. But coming from that Hispanic background in the home, they may not have that academic English exposure and the the dialect they speak isn't what they necessarily are seeing in the school texts and i i would say that that's probably true and i think in the area that i live in i i've come to see that a lot of it is it's it seems to be more socioeconomical issues so than even along you know a racial divide i that just seems to be that that's popping out for me more than mm-hmm. anything else with what I, what I'm working with, because the, the lack of, if students have the lack of um, access to computers or internet, it's a function of living at or below poverty or close to it, you know, low income. So that, that, that kind of narrows a lot of opportunity. Mm -hmm. So, 
And, you know, public school is meant to level the playing field, but obviously we're not doing good enough. Yesterday you were talking about 40 to 45%, I believe the school population Mm -hmm. is needing your support. And when we look at the research, it should really be 80 to 95% of students that learn how to read when they're taught based Mm -hmm. on a science of reading or a structured literacy curriculum. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing the students that we're not going to learn how to read regardless of how they were taught. They need that systematic, explicit instruction. And it's something that they've missed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I saw, I saw that it was, fun. it's kind of funny because this year in particular, so many things just fell into place for me because I have the, um, I have several, I have five grandkids and I'm working with my one, two, three, four, the fourth one. And he's in, he's finishing his second grade year. And I was helping him with his reading specifically and talking with his uh, teacher specifically. And it was very clear that there's not, that he had not received any kind of systematic instruction in phonics. He was receiving phonics based on what the standards were that she was working with. And that's when I started to see really clearly that not having something that was systematic, that was making sure that I'm covering all of the bases that that was leaving holes. And those are the holes that I was seeing very clearly in my freshman. So working with my second grade grandson, I, I, the thread between where he was at and the students were that I'm teaching where they're at my, Oh my gosh, it was like a direct line. And that's when I just knew I came across another article. It was probably in the Atlantic or maybe it was Forbes. I can't, I, I have it in file anyway. I can send you the links to the, everything that I've been reading. Um, uh, basically that we're, we're teaching our kids to be poor readers. And that author made a lot of points. And I, that started me really digging deep into the journey of what I hear in my district, what I see in my district, the result of what is happening in the K2. And I don't know, I really don't know what's happening for six. I, I don't know if when I, when I look at all their standards, they don't really have any kind of reading standards, not in the way teaching reading standards look like in the kinder first and second grade uh, standards for California ELA. Um, so. Mm. So uh, it sounds like a lot of your approach to getting that additional knowledge is going more the academic route, looking for research papers and that first level of um, entry point into the research and that you have the skills to go through that and get the information you need out of it. And Mm -hmm. as a high school teacher, looking at this structured literacy, the lens that you're looking at it is different than those primary teachers. They're looking for that initial first step instruction. You're mm-hmm. looking at the intervention side mm-hmm. of things. And especially yeah. when you have that 
the trauma-informed teaching that, you, that you've been talking about, making sure that you can meet your students where they are and going forward. Mm-hmm. Now, right. are there any books or resources that really helped you see a, a clear path and how to meet their needs? Not really. Not, not with, um, I, I, I'm having, I'm building something. I'm building the curriculum because my students are not only in my class, I have students who have IEPs. Mm-hmm. I have students who I, di- I discover things. I, I spend a lot of time talking with my kids. I have a reading table. Maybe tomorrow we'll look at, I have this big giant kidney bean table. And I, I use, I look at a lot of things that uh, kinder first, second, third grade teachers are doing. And I've, when I finally got to, when I got through all the brain stuff and then I, I started to find uh, science of reading articles and I started digging in a lot and said, oh my God, this is wonderful. And I like all this, this is great. And so, you know, I'm looking at, then I started following teachers on Instagram and going different places like that, social media primarily and finding resources that way. So I, I went down the rabbit hole and then got lost in it, but I was gathering good things. And what I, what I knew was I, I, I can't use, I can't really use things that are kinder first or second grade. Cause they're not really appropriate when you're 14 or 15, they don't look appropriate. Um, the context around it sometimes is, Cause my kids are not going to, I'm not going to do something that looks like it's kind of garlic. You know? So I have to, I have to take that into consideration. I have to make something that that's based on a principle that they need. And the other thing is they, they don't, they already, for the most part, they, they know their ABCs. They know most of the sounds or, you know, I don't have to spend as much time because they, they have some language under their belt, most of them. And then so it's, it's a matter of, of taking them from where they're at and I can, I can go at a different, I, I, I had to create a different scope and sequence for them. And I made sure that I created a chart that covered, I cover a lot of sounds. I have, I call it the sound book mm-hmm. and I can show you that tomorrow, but um, sure. it has all the, like all the little parts of the speech. And I, I just, talk to them about, um, you know, the languages, language comes easy for people. Like we, we talk, that's the first thing when nobody teaches, you know, nobody tells a baby to say their first word. Babies just start babbling. They make noise. We encourage specific noises and sounds that then form the first words, right? Like mama, baba, that kind of thing. And I said, that's natural for us, but what isn't natural for us is to write and writing is a whole other thing. So, um, and, it, and it's hard. And I, a lot of them, I, I believe, had the idea that it should be easy, mm-hmm. that because they were struggling a little bit, that that meant they were dumb. Mm-hmm. And if they were behind their friends in their classes, in their work, or not reading as fast as somebody else, let's say, then that just sort of creates a whole level of anxiety. And I saw that in my grandson. My grandson would tell me, uh, he would describe like, well, I'm in a different book than my friends. I'm in a different table. I, he was talking to me about going, yeah, he was in a pullout program. So they were pulling him out of his school to go to a reading teacher. He's like, my other friends don't. 
And, and I could tell that he, he felt down about himself for that. He didn't feel as smart. Like the other kids were smarter. The other kids were faster than he was. And I was thinking, man, I bet all of my reading kids had that feeling, you know, like they probably all felt like that when they were in second grade and they felt like that in third and fourth and fifth and sixth because they didn't have a Nona who was a reading teacher. Mm-hmm. So, well, and one thing that you talked about earlier in our conversation today was about that disengagement. And it makes sense for these students, you know, in high school to be disengaged because they'd rather be the student that doesn't care and doesn't pay attention mm. than the student that's stupid. And right. so it's, that's def- the default. And we're teaching them and doing that reinforcement to get them there. So it's our job and our responsibility to find a way to get them back in and to that literate mind. Right now, I was hoping that we could talk through those five pillars of literacy and how you think it applies to where you're teaching. Like, okay. do you notice that your students struggle with phonological and phonemic awareness? Can you, can you see that in your students? Yeah, I do. Um, they, they don't really have a grasp of, of any of that. They don't, they don't know that there are, um, like they might recognize the word green, let's say, but they don't, they don't recognize that GR is, is a blend and they don't know that they don't know if they, they recognize the word green, they say green, but if they see another word that has GR, right. Um, and it's a word they don't know, they might, they don't necessarily start out going grrr, you know they're just like grrr. Like, oh no uh they uh, any kind of vowel team if it's something that looks different or they're not sure about it they're you know trying to do it individually so they don't have any of they they really lack that there's my students literally come to the words as a whole word and they don't understand the component parts, the sounds that make up the word. So that really, that, that really hurts them. They don't, they just, they don't have any idea. So it sounds like they're starting from square one with each word that they look at and they're having to go back to that basics. They're not able to use that analytic phonics approach saying, oh, I recognize that from something else. So right. I apply that knowledge. They're just starting right. at the very basics. And that's an inefficient way to read, especially yeah. if they have, you know, at least rudimentary phonics skills. So, mm-hmm. you know, are, are they students in your class? I mean, obviously there's a range, but are they able to just break that word up into its phonemes, into the, its individual speech sounds? Or is that? Mm-mm. No. Nope. And what about telling the difference between some of the different sounds, like talking about the, you know, the voiced and the unvoiced, recognizing mm-hmm. the difference between a k and a g. Like maybe they can tell the difference in the words, but when it comes to spelling, you don't see that. Correct. That they, they don't. I, I, I have to teach them all of that. So we start, I start out with uh, this, the, I just call it set. That's why I created the sound book. So I, mm-hmm. everything about sounds. And I taught them about voice and unvoiced. And it was kind of, it's always kind of funny because they're old enough to be like, oh my God, this looks so dumb. 
like no really put your put hold right here it was awful with masks i it was just like oh you know so you feel right here good like do you feel back here good good and they want to go god i'm like don't put a vowel on it just good just give me the noise and then you know where you put your uh tongue mm-hmm. on your mouth to make sounds all of that I had to teach all of them that like things that were voiced and unvoiced and how vowels work. And I just, I, I like language and I like the sound. I, I like why I, I like how you, how we produce the sound. I like how it sounds. Um, I'm curious about all those things. And I had a, I had a student, um, she, she really struggles with uh, auditory processing and visual. Mm-hmm. so she has IEP and but I, I noticed that she was in choir and she was having a really hard time holding on to the the sound of uh, long a and long e and long i she it was easier for her to get the short vowel sound but the long vowel sounds she just like she couldn't do it and then I so I thought well you're in choir and I said well listen I'm gonna hold the sound of long a and you say that word. And when you hit the vowel, when you hit where the A is, you hold that sound of that and let's see if we match. So I was like, A, and she's saying the word, you know, A, A, that's a long A. So I don't, I don't know if that's in a book anywhere, but, that, but that's what, that, those are the kind of things that I'm reaching for because I have students who have so many years of being unsuccessful that it's just like whatever it takes whatever whatever I got to do and and that that's one of those things that I find that I discovered using song uh as as notes right Mm -hmm. and helping kids make make that connection so they could hear it because they also have a hard time isolating the sounds so then once I teach them teach them the sounds and then to be able to isolate a sound by themselves and then recognize it. That took a long time. And before that, you know, it's like, please believe me, everybody, like I'm, I'm going to teach you something. And you know, they're just, they're like, they're like, they're, they're looking at you like, why are you different? Like, exactly. What are you going to do? How, how are you going to be different than any other English teacher I had? Well, first of all, I'm not your English teacher. I'm your reading teacher. So it's different right there. Well, and it sounds like you're that superstar teacher that's willing to go the distance and whatever you can do to make your students get the information they need to take that next step and really make a difference in their line lives. I hope, I hope so. I, I, most of the days, honestly, I feel like I'm just doing this. So yeah, if, if I can, if I'm, where, you know, with everything that I've read and what I've worked on, I've just come down to it, um, that they need, they need to understand the sounds and how those sounds are translated into text and being able to identify chunks and being able to move through that information with a multi-sensory environment. Um, I made gel tablets. I have magnetic letters. I use little whiteboards. I use a lot of things that might you might only find in an elementary classroom, but they don't look like they're elementary the way I present them, right? Because they 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 need the same kind of practice 
and exposure that they didn't get in K2. So I'm like, I'm trying to like take a lot of years of what they didn't get and like smash it into a one year where I see them for 57 hours, 57 minutes a day. Right. Instead of that, I don't have them all day. If I had the same class all day, I could rotate in a different, in a different way and I could cover more ground. You know what I mean? Like, but I'm not a self-contained classroom, so I don't have that luxury. And that's the other thing is that everything that we've been presented with and my district in the last 16 years, nothing, nothing is high school. They always show us, here's how, here's the element, here's what they're doing. Here's how it looks in the elementary classroom. That doesn't really work for us. Well, and then sometimes it's like a junior high. Well, these are junior high kids. Like, okay, but you have five of them in that class because it's a tier three intervention or something class, but it's still focused on graphic organizers and stuff like that. And at some point, I mean, the goal is that the students should be able to access the, the words on the page. And because it's been so long, so not only am I dealing with trying to teach them about the language, how the language works, why it works the way it does, and to get them to feel comfortable and okay with, you know, sometimes it, it, it might not make sense. You know, sometimes you might not understand why is, you know, why is the bee silent, but I see it? Like, why does it have to be here? Like, well, you know, because back in the day, we pronounced it and we don't pronounce it anymore, but it's still in there. Why they keep it in there, you know, doesn't really matter at this point. You just have to know that that is what it is. And, and it's okay to question it. And it's okay if you mess up on it. That's okay. And I'm teaching them to come with, with something in their hand. Because that's the other thing that has happened is that there is a, they don't know. They really don't know in their heart. They just, they don't know that they're supposed to come to me or to their teacher with questions. And I gave them the analogy of, you know, um, that what I'm providing for you is this Thanksgiving dinner, like, like come in, like, here's this feast, but let's, let's dig into this. So you need to come to the, to the reading table or to the class discussion, what we're doing, don't come empty handed. Mm -hmm. And what does that look like and sound like? It looks like you asking me a specific question. Mm -hmm. I don't understand why this word sounds the way it does, Ms. Keller. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, let's, let's look at that. So that, that, that's coming with something to the table. Bring me something. Mm -hmm. And I can't, and it takes a while for them to understand that when, um, for me to understand where, what they're thinking, to figure out why they're doing whatever they're doing, I have to hear them because I can't look inside their head. So I don't know. And sometimes they're like, they literally tell me there's nothing there. Like I, I, it's, it's just blank. So then that, you know, that will, depending on what it is, I, I have to go down that road. And, and then I realize, wow, I, the question, what I'm asking, I'm, I'm too far, I'm too ahead. So I got to back up. So I do a lot of that. So I do a lot of guessing, like educated guesses. And then I see what, how that works and the result of that. And then that leads me to where, where they are. Cause I often, I'm trying to figure out where their Swiss cheese is, if that makes sense. And yeah, they don't, 
Yeah. And there's really not a, there's not really one diagnostic test that's going to give me each kid's individual Swiss cheese and why they have that Swiss cheese. I need to know why I need to know about what it, I need to know where the holes are in their Swiss cheese and then why they have them so that I can help them fix that. Definitely. You know what I mean? And that's just, that's a job. So, uh, um, I'm hope what we're, what I'm working on now, I, I feel that the kids do need systematic phonics instruction. They need that. It needs to look differently for my students than it does in the elementary school because they're older. They do have uh, more understanding about words and language, even though they're behind than say a five-year-old or a six-year-old. So sometimes all it takes is for me to give like a one-time explanation. They sit like uh, some kids will sit with me one time, like, like, bing, and then the light goes on. And, and then by doing the same thing, you all find there'll be another group. They're like, I'm still confused. <laughs> so the other group's moving forward. Then the other group kind of stays there. And so at this time of the year, I have, I don't know, I have 20 groups flying around. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> that's what I call my three ring circus. So every class is a three ring circus. Of and course. if I have five classes, I got 15, I have 15 circuses going on. I don't know. Yeah. So, then you also like the phonics and the phonological awareness are just you know one part of that equation you also have information like the vocabulary Mm -hmm. fluency and their ability to comprehend but if we don't have that word recognition right yeah they can't even get to because because words have not held a lot of meaning for them for years that it it takes a minute to, you know, get them to realize that words are supposed to have a meaning and that they can, yes, you can, you can access the meaning. Yes, you can learn how to pronounce those words. And yes, you can learn what they mean. Mm -hmm. And I'm having a lot of kids that are making a lot of progress now at the end. And I hear it in their conversation. I, um, I hear it in the questions that they bring me you know, and that makes me feel good. And I'm sad that it's over, you know? So I wish I really need them next year. I'm going to have them. I'm going to have one English class that in order to be in that class, I think I'll have 30, maybe 35. That'll be a lot, but 30, 35 is a regular English class size for high school. And, um, I will have probably, quite a few I'll have four reading classes so not every kid that's in there will be able to fit into that English class so I'll probably take the lowest of the low and that pulls them out of the general population of the English classes and I'm better I'm better able to support that Mm -hmm. so I use things like um podcast I make podcasts for kids wow and I, so I, re, I, uh, I read text and then I'll have them pause. So they do everything with their headphone and I, I read it and I'll say, okay, now stop. And I'll have them do something specific with what we've done. And then that's the work that they can bring me to the table. So I sort of duplicate myself mm-hmm. and I'm making right now, uh, I call them, uh, I make the one big sound book and I'm making 
audio visual books. So they're digital magazines. Oh, awesome. Um, I, so I'm well, doing te- technology that way to, uh, so when I deliver a first instruction, so here's the concept that we're going to be learning. Here's, here's what it is. And then using the technology to reinforce those concepts and those ideas, giving them an opportunity to look at it as many times, listen to it as many times as they need. Um, and then that gives them the opportunity to then, because it gives me the ability to sort of pause in the three ring circus to where I can address individual needs. Mm-hmm. And when the kids are, they get stuck on something, then, then they, you know, training them to ask me the question that's specific, like what, what's really blowing your mind right now? you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes kids, they'll surprise me by what they ask, because what blows their mind. I'm like, wow, I, I didn't even, I didn't think about that. It's like, thank you. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to write that down and remember that. Um, so I have to do, I have to be creative in that way. And that's why is there, there's no one. And I'm really, I'm really, uh, I'm convinced that there's no one, there's no one way. And I think that's probably the most frustrating thing as a reading teacher is that if there was a magic book or workbook or program that a lot of money right if there was something like that we would all be doing it Mm -hmm. because we would see if if there was one teacher that was like oh my gosh like I did this program and every one of my kids just excelling. It was bananas. It was crazy. It just like blew my mind. If one reading teacher did that and told another reading teacher and then they tried it, it would be like, because we, because that's really what we all want. You know, we want to, we want to give kids the ability to catch up in their language skills, reading and writing. And we want their light bulb to just, they want their brain to just be like popping with, you know, new stuff. Well, we I look forward to tomorrow when we have our conversation and you're going to show me inside your big top in the three ring circus. Yeah. Um, learn all about these different tips and tricks for those that are, at, are watching this as a replay. It will be titled uh, Janelle Keller inside my classroom. And it's definitely one that you're going to want to pay attention to because I know we're going to learn about some great resources and activities. Thank you so much for joining me today. And everybody remember to follow the right to read initiative. And the handle is at capital R to capital R capital I N I T I. Uh, Whatever. Our <laughs> R initiative is the handle for the Right to Read initiative. And our podcasts are available on various platforms. Thank you, everybody, and have a great day. Thank you so much.